Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around the country and, of course, around the world as well. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, be that Spotify or iTunes or whatever, uh, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Uh, joining me, as always, is our Tech Essential Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. And Niall, I can't believe I'm actually saying the words. The National Broadband Plan has been signed. Yeah, this is the third time we've talked about the National Broadband Plan in a few months. Uh, Usually centering around there is only one bidder left therefore just sign the thing and let's all move on with our lives uh well now the thing has been signed and now we can move on with our lives do you think that's the end of it Uh, they'll just get on with it or are we going to hear more about this darn plan uh well i mean this thing has been seven years in the making Mm. uh we the timeline on it expects it to be done in another seven years uh whether that's optimistic or about right we we won't know until things start kicking off um i mean it's been such an albatross around the neck of so many governments uh is it going to continue to be so possibly like air swooped in a couple of years ago and went oh okay so many x hundred thousand properties are going to need connection to the network How, how's about we look at the cheap ones make them a deal and get them out of the catchment area so the only customers or potential customers that are left are the ones that aren't profitable for us to service but i mean the catchment is something like five hundred and forty thousand premises and uh one million people so that's still a very significant amount of people a lot of potential customers and uh, national broadband ireland will have to look out will have to look after all of them well, I think uh, the fact that they have an immediate goal uh, to get to 300 uh, points around the country that are hard to reach. Uh, I think generally they're going into communities and doing it in like, you know, a local church or a local uh, GAA hall or something like that. But somewhere where you can get high speed uh, access to the Internet and then roll it out from there to the uh, rest of the community. They have to have that done by the end of next year. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's. I don't want to say that's an ambitious timetable, but that's good. I mean, that's 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 there. I think it's uh, more than doable. More than doable. Uh, well, you've been quite cynical about the plan for a long oh, time. It's it's you know what? It just drives me nuts. How we keep we talk every single week on this program about the speed of the internet, and we're talking about something uh, about broadband, which is so vitally important for this country. The internet and the speed of it and everything. Seven years. Seven years we're talking about. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, well, sorry. you remember um, the, the the goals of the National Broadband Plan have changed significantly over that time. Oh, that's uh, true. I mean, I think, what are they, what's the minimum connection speed they're looking for now? It's 30 uh, megs, isn't it? Uh, oh, no, no, no. I think it was started off at 30 megs and I think it's up to around 150 megs now. 
that rings a bell yeah. that rings a bell alright and that just shows how applications have changed that yeah. you know a, a 30 meg connection is no longer sufficient but to you know it'll, you know it'll happen happy. in the year 2028 when the uh, uh, when the broadband plan has finished oh we'll all <laughs> uh, be on gigabit broadband yeah, exactly yeah 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 we got, I only have a gig <laughs> it's terrible <laughs> it crawls along <laughs> I know I know it's, it's terrible listen the, uh, uh, the other news this week uh, uh, far more interesting uh, if I had a, a million euro I might invest in one of these uh, Apple has got a brand new 16 inch laptop out but it's wildly expensive well, I mean, you were, you raised a figure there, and you, if you had a million euro, or whatever, if you had two thousand seven hundred euro, you you could get a start on it. Oh, God. That's so Apple, isn't it? With their with their high end products, it's it's like the Mac Pro when they released it, and they said it starts at six thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but they know. They know who they want to use things and they're segmenting the market as appropriate. They know that home users don't need a 15-inch laptop with the sort of capabilities they have. So let's just price them out of the market. We want people to buy MacBook Airs. Maybe we want people to buy, uh, you know, a desktop Mac. We don't want them to buy a Mac Pro. You know, so they they just price these professional uh, grade machines well out of the market of regular consumers on the assumption that the people who will buy these machines actually need them for work well uh, it's not people who'll be buying them for uh, for work it'll be companies and corporations that'll be buying them for work and they're quite well priced uh, when you look at a corporation that's turning over hundreds or of, of thousands of euro a year or millions of euro or the movie business or the video business or anything of broadcasting and stuff like that it's big money and when you're talking three grand for a machine that's going to do things at twice the speed well yeah i'll have i'll have 10 yeah yeah, yeah, so. yeah if, if price is no object this this is the sort of thing that you're going to see professionals using. Uh, they are effectively business machines. You know, previously business m- machines were like bog standard laptops that you would play tennis with. Mm. You know, now you know the business machine. It's high powered. It's high end. Yeah. Apple have always had a good rep with designers and media types. This is the device for those people. Everyone else, yeah, by all means, yep. enjoy oh. enjoy a MacBook Air. Yeah, for you, for the likes of you and I, if we had two thousand seven hundred euro, we would uh, invest a thousand in a very very nice laptop. Uh, it has to be said, and the other seventeen hundred would go on a holiday. <laughs> be a very nice holiday at that. <laughs> Indeed, that's the news for this week. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's TechCentral.ie. Every week we try to make complex ideas sound simple. However, one man whose full-time job to do this is Brian Trench, who will be speaking at SciComm at the Aviva Stadium on December the 3rd. Uh, Niall Kitson sat down and had a chat with him recently to find out about the history of science communication here in Ireland. I guess when we're looking at the role of science communication, I think there's a very interesting history wrapped up in it. Going back, I suppose, to the the 1990s, I think, is when you've been sort of sticking a pin in it and going, something interesting started happening here um, from looking at science communication from a societal, political, but but also a a cultural perspective. So you tell us a little bit about this particular moment in time and how um, science communication has sort of, uh, I guess, fermented? Yeah, well, uh, I moved from journalism into journalism teaching uh, in 1992, joining Dublin City University, 
with an idea that I was wanted to do something in the area of science and media, science and communication, but I didn't actually know what that was. Uh, and fortunately, I joined the university at a time when it was possible to take something that you wanted to do and make it happen. Uh, and I discovered that there was a thing called science communication. And, uh, you know, that was in itself quite revealing in the sense that the term science communication was relatively new at the time. Uh, it had been called pre other things previously. Uh, and so that's now 27 years ago. And over the quarter of a century since then, you know, the term's quite well established, I think. Uh, it's not universally understood, it's not universally accepted and practiced uh, within the scientific communities, but nonetheless, the term is reasonably well understood and we have journals, we have books, we have conferences, we have associations, we have master's programs, we have short training courses, and we have uh, SciComm since 2015 as a kind of national forum for people doing science communication every year attracting 200 plus people who all have some level of interest or involvement in voluntary or professional capacity in science communication. So that's a relatively short time for an idea that was barely an idea a quarter of a century ago to be now uh, well established in our language, in our institutions, in our government policies, because there are programs of public awareness of science and public engagement with science, uh, supported and, and managed by Science Foundation Ireland. And so, and, and so we've, we've moved very considerable distance uh, in that time. When we're looking at the representation of science uh, in the media domestically anyway, do you think that the appetite for wanting to learn about science from you know from at school level or the general public is increasing to a level that academics are realizing that they are going to have to move out into the world and tell their story whereas before they mightn't have had to uh well just on the media part of that uh media attention to science in ireland is uh to put it kindly patchy um, and very little is happening in that respect in what we call mainstream media that isn't funded or supported in some way by Science Foundation Ireland. Uh, and there are TV programs that simply wouldn't happen were it not for this sponsorship. And the, and the exception within the mainstream media is the Irish Times, which has had a... a a science page for over 20 years and a science editor or part-time or whole-time uh, for all of that uh, period as well. Uh, and that actually says something about the Irish Times as much as it says something about uh, the wider society because the Irish Times is, you know, the paper which targets the education elite and the education elite includes the scientists. So to some extent, the coverage of science is actually coverage of science for scientists, or at least for those who are actively uh, engaged with science. But outside of that, you know, the other the newspapers very sporadically cover science and generally speaking, taking it from international news agencies. Uh, and, and so that's, that's also true for the, the national broadcaster. Uh, and one of the commercial broadcasters, News Talk, does have a regular program. But again, it is 
and it's very high profile and very honest and open about this, it is there by virtue of the support from Science Foundation Ireland. So the media scene is, is the media's attention to science doesn't explain very much in terms of the increasing interest in science that I certainly discern among the wider public. To some extent, the wider public that is interested in science is going elsewhere other than the Irish established media uh, to find information. And, of course, because we have so much available from across the globe at a touch of a button, uh, that's that's not hard to do, you know. Uh, but but there's plenty of evidence of greater public interest. Uh, just this week we are in Science Week, uh, and in the town of Wexford, where I live close to, uh, I was able, I went to a science cafe last night, well attended by a motley crew of people, uh, some of whom professionally engaged with science and others not, uh, discussing relationships between art and science. Uh, so I think the atmosphere, the, the public culture, is is gradually changing. And I would attribute a lot, for example, to Science Gallery uh, Dublin in Trinity College uh, in that respect. The Festival of Curiosity, which happens every summer in Dublin also. Uh, Science Week, which I've already mentioned, and which has spawned local science festivals uh, in uh, provincial towns uh, and cities uh, 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 as well, uh, would be a, another factor. So, yeah, I think the culture is changing and the media is probably a rather laggard part of that. You made mention there of that sort of overlap between the arts and sciences. Ireland is, is of course, recognised internationally for uh, for our arts. Science, I mean, the, the pedigree is there, if not the awareness. Do you think... Uh, Arts is a, a, a palatable way to, to get scientific stories out there. Or do you think science is it, it's forever going to be the geeky little, you know, sibling in the corner? Well, another story from from Wexford, which uh, uh, I found very striking was over just over a year ago. Uh, a major conference took place in the National Concert Hall, uh, marking 75 years since the physicist Erwin Schrödinger published uh, his uh, series of lectures called What is Life? And in Wexford, uh, a couple of people uh, in association with the conference asked artists in the region, southeast region, uh, mainly anyway, to come up with works that they had done uh, that related to science. And somewhat to their surprise, and certainly to mine, as a viewer, they were able to put together a very sizable, interesting and significant exhibition of works of art in various forms, uh, two-dimensional and three-dimensional, uh, black and white and color and photographic and drawn and so on, uh, that related to scientific ideas. Uh, what this indicates to me is that actually in the artists' community, at least, scientific ideas find a resonance uh, and artists are taking ideas from science as a basis for for their own creations uh, that may be a more that's a very different way now of looking at that relationship from the idea that the arts can be uh, instrumentalized or or you might even say weaponized to do the job of public communication of science uh, 
uh, that that also happens. You know, SFI has commissioned a spoken word piece for Science Week uh, to, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called Everything. It's just been put up online today, I think. Uh, and it's, you know, using the techniques of kind of contemporary street, city, poetry, uh, kind of rap type uh, uh, spoken word uh, performance to talk about science and its contribution to uh, society. I guess the poet in question, Stephen James Smith, wouldn't have done it, except he was interested himself also. Uh, so although it might seem a bit instrumentalised, uh, there must have been something there already in the poet's mind for him to have been able to act on such a commission. So again, rather like the, the, the idea of the barriers weakening to scientists becoming in public becoming involved in public communication that we referred to earlier, I think actually we can say that the kind of barriers between the two cultures, as it's sometimes called, are also weakening, partly because artists are interested in the ideas coming from science, and partly also because scientists are interested in the kind of perspectives that artists might of various kinds might bring to their work. I think there's a wonderful example there in terms of maker culture, but also in the artist's willingness to fail, which is, I, th I think, something that they uh, certainly hold in common with scientists, that very often there's more to be gleaned from failure than success. Yes, uh, we don't hear very much from science about its failures. I mean, it, we, you know, those of us who have an active interest in it can very quickly find, you know, papers that were retracted, experiments that misfired and so on. But generally speaking, the public version of science that we get, uh, and certainly from the major agencies and institutions, is one of success after success after success after success, breakthrough after breakthrough, major grant after major grant. So uh, I'm not quite sure that I accept your uh, analogy between the artist's uh, willingness to face failure and the scientist's willingness to face failure. I think the artist's willingness to face failure is more public, or uh, artists are more open to talking about it in public than scientists are willing to do it because they fear somehow that their authority uh, as purveyors of reliable knowledge will be damaged or affected by acknowledging that actually the 347 times they did the experiment failed until they got the first one that worked. You know, I'm sorry, I made that number up, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I think that kind of extends to the idea of nuance as well, that I've seen cases where scientists have been reticent to speak in public, say, on, on the radio or on television or, or whatever, about a subject on the off chance that they, they misspeak or they say something or they create an opening for a, a competitor to um, maybe uh, discredit their work or something like that. Do, do you agree that there might be, um, that also might be a, a barrier to uh, to uh, science communication, the, the sort of the fear of saying the wrong thing in a medium that really, you know, it's consumed and it's thrown away. It's not archived for posterity. I do. Uh, I've, I, I used to come across this a lot uh, when I did training of scientists uh, in public communication, which, which I was doing up to very recently and still do very occasionally. Uh, and if you were talking to a group of scientists who had 
uh, relatively little exposure to media, uh, and you ask them what you know what their perceptions were uh, of media and and what the difficulties might be. One of the things that would come up is that uh, it, well, one 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 regular response was a kind of horror story that they'd heard not from not from their own experience but rather from somebody else's experience so somebody else had an inter- did an interview uh, and they got uh, hounded by the journalists or whatever uh, or they got something slightly wrong and tried to correct it and there was no room to make a correction or they got something slightly wrong and their colleagues uh, uh, ridiculed them or whatever uh, but it tended to be horror stories about other people now, there's, I think there's a kind of a, 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 a set of these kinds of stories that circulate in scientific communities as a way of kind of discouraging people. Uh, not, I mean, not deliberately, but, but that, that function to discourage people from getting involved in public communication. Generally speaking, when people do put their heads above the parapet and get interviewed or uh, whatever, they find that actually, by and large, the reporters or uh, producers or interviewers or researchers that they're dealing with don't have two horns, that they are very reasonable people who, when you say, actually, sorry, I misspoke there, can we go back and can I do that again? Uh, most people will do it, you know, unless it's live, which if, you, if you've gone on air and it's the first time you've ever gone on air and you go live, well, then that's your fault if you make a mistake. You should absolutely not do it the first time go live. But anyway, um, yeah, that, that, can be, uh, that can be an issue for people getting over the first hurdle or two or three. Um. Of course, this is when we were looking at the upshot or, or looking at a, a successful example of science communication in action. It's not necessarily about engaging with the, the media and putting a good media sort of um, uh, persona in place but it's also about creating trust between the community which can extend to uh, projects within the community i'm thinking of things like uh, renewable energy where there is quite a, a big impact on how people might see and feel about their community uh, if an idea is uh, you know communicated effectively that can create a level of trust that wouldn't have existed between you know the people on the ground in the ivory tower to to mash some some uh, clichés together do do you see that in practice well, more and more scientists are working in areas that have a public uh, dimension to them. Uh, so just in the last couple of days, I was hearing a former colleague of mine, a uh, very uh, highly respected colleague, uh, Fiona Regan, professor of chemistry in DCU. Uh, she runs the Water Institute in that university uh, where I used to work myself. And uh, of course, she gets wheeled out as an expert on, you know, management of, of, of water resources, uh, contamination of water resources, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, and, and now that she's, you know, out there answering questions that, that arising from the failures at the leaks to plant, she's going to be asked again and again and again. You know, once once somebody has made themselves available as a scientific expert on a topic of public interest, they're going to find themselves asked over and over again. Obviously, anybody working on anything that has to do with climate and climate change is going to be you know, asked questions and expected to perform in some way publicly. Uh, but, you know, there are a whole range of biomedical areas too where there is a, a very strong public dimension, you know, controversies about vaccines, etc. cetera. Um, and, and, you know, more and more scientists are going to find, you know, if certainly working 
in applied areas, whatever about fundamental areas, more and more scientists are going to find that, uh, you know, there's people knocking at their door and they, of course, they can tell them to go away. But as you say, from a trust point of view, they're probably better off taking the risk uh, of possibly making a, an error of some kind or what their colleagues might perceive as an error, uh, uh, taking that risk uh, in order to, uh, yeah, win, win credibility and trust and confidence. I think lastly, uh, it's important to raise the the era and the the wider climate of you know fake news. And you you raised um, uh, the campaign against vaccinations there uh, as well. Things that seem uh, as much rooted in uh, rhetoric and almost superstition. Um, how does how do scientists combat these you know? Uh, uh, unreliable uh, narratives, if you will, uh, without getting bogged down in facts or, you know, making the truth of a situation palatable when there is so much emotion attached to the counterpoint? Well, it's not easy, uh, for sure. Uh, But I think there is a temptation within scientific communities to engage in in, in debunking, which is, you know, uh, a to, to, in other words, to take on uh, this kind of uh, well, well, sticking with the example of of, of the anti-vax uh, movement, take them on in an aggressive way. Uh, and while the damage that the anti-vax movement does or can potentially do is significant, if not massive, uh, it probably better not to antagonize, uh, in my view, but rather just to say, this is not how we see it from a scientific point of view, and this is how we know what we know. And in other words, to take people through how scientific knowledge is put together, uh, take people into the process of scientific knowledge, and now say back to the anti-vaccine people, say now, how do you know what you know? And, you know, you will then be, uh, uh, potentially at least, you, you will then be able to show up that they don't really know what they claim to know, or if they do know what it is on the basis of some kind of uh, ingrained belief or bias or, as you say, superstition. I, I, I think that uh, there's a job to be done in science communication generally and not everybody in science communication supports my this kind of perspective that I'm outlining uh, of of telling the story of how science is done at least as much as telling the story of what science has found. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Brian Trench about science communication here in Ireland. And Brian, uh, the author, will be speaking at SciCom, which is happening at the Aviva Stadium on December the 3rd. Uh, that's almost it for our show for this week. Just before we go, Niall's still with us. But will you have one more thing, something we couldn't get in on the uh, programme that is online. 
One more thing, yeah. Salesforce is using its Einstein AI to develop some very interesting voice-controlled applications. You can get the lowdown on that and all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or of course listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.